This is the Hidden Why podcast, episode 792. This is my interview with Dawson Church. We're talking about mind to matter. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Yo, 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 what's going on? Welcome to another interview on the Hidden Why podcast. Happy July to you guys. This is my first episode in the month of July, the 1st of July. What a perfect month. This is my birthday month, guys. So if you want to reach out and give me a shout out, that'd be uh, awesome work. 29th of July is my birthday. Uh, Feeling younger than ever. Looking forward to that day as well. But guys, it is July. Hope you're well and thank you for tuning in to this episode. Today I'm talking with Dawson Church and it's a really interesting conversation about uh, our consciousness and how we can change our lives, change our reality by really enhancing our level of consciousness, our level of awareness. And he's got many practices that he shares. He doesn't really share all the practices in depth. He more shares and talks about how these practices work, how through tapping, through meditation, we can change our thoughts. We can directly change how our emotions dictate our behaviors, how the emotions dictate our reality. We can control our level of consciousness so we can manifest a better reality. Now, it sounds a little bit woo-woo, but once you start listening to our conversation with Dawson, he provides many of case studies, real-life examples, but also the science behind all of this stuff and how it works. It's really fascinating, guys. I could have gone a lot deeper with him, but I think we just skimmed the surface and got a lot of value out of it. And to wrap it up, we've got some practical takeaways as well, so we can all start implementing it into our daily lives. Guys, thanks for tuning in once again, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Cheers. G'day Dawson, welcome to the Hidden Wild Podcast. How are you today? Fantastic, thank you Lee. Now Dawson, whereabouts are you located? Northern California, Petaluma, although I work with research teams all over the world. Right, okay. And, and so tell us Dawson a bit about your, your work. I mean you've got some fascinating work. I've, I've had a bit of a research myself and read a few of your things and um, certainly very interesting work, but uh, how did you get into it and, and what is it all about? Well, I learned energy healing methods at an early age. When I was uh, a teenager, I was very depressed. I had PTSD. I was very anxious, very lonely. And so when I was 15, I went to go live on a spiritual community. Hmm. And so I was trying to fix myself, trying to come to terms with my own inner misery and uh, learned all these, these techniques. But they made me a little bit happier, but not much. And so, What is energy uh, healing? Like what, is, what, what sort of techniques are you talking about here? Uh, there are maybe 30 or so well-known techniques hmm. that explicitly use healing to affect the body. Uh, one of the best-known ones is called healing touch or therapeutic touch, which is a, a paradox. So you actually don't, don't touch the person. You hold your hands a little ways away from them. But that's one example of one used widely by nurses. There are about like Reiki and stuff like that? Are, yeah. Uh, Reiki, Joe Ray, uh, energy medicine, all of these are, there are many different schools for these, these techniques. Yeah. And is there any science there that sort of shows that they are quite effective or? On the website of my nonprofit, we maintain a database, a list of all of the studies published in peer-reviewed journals showing that these techniques are used for things like arthritis and cancer and lupus and autoimmune diseases. And there are over 600 studies showing that these techniques are effective. There are over a thousand studies of acupuncture, for example, in addition to that. So uh, there are literally thousands of studies showing these, these techniques are effective. Okay. Okay, we can talk more about. Sorry, I've just cut into your uh, your story there, but um, yeah, I definitely want to talk about that too. 
Yeah, so so what, what happened for me was I was in book publishing and most of my professional life, and I was helping publish books on these alternative therapies and present these to the world. But I switched from being a presenter of these therapies in the early 2000s to being a really passionate advocate of these, th- these therapies because I realized that they needed champions in the medical system. And so I began to do the research, initially very simple outcome studies, eventually randomized controlled trials, eventually full-scale clinical trials, uh, and then meta-analyses and really sophisticated research procedures to show that they worked. Hmm. What I also began to become really interested in was not just that they work, because at the early stages of any therapy, you want to know, does this work? If you're a patient in pain, absolutely, yeah. pain at a 7 or 8 out of 10, you want to know, will this relieve my pain? So what do you care about? You don't care how it relieves your pain. You just want your pain relieved. And so initially, all of these studies are outcomes in terms of well, patient well-being. Is my depression going away? Are my flashbacks and nightmares going away? Hmm. So that's the whole initial generation of most studies, most uh, most techniques follow that trajectory. But then the question becomes, how? How is this working? Yeah. And that can take a long time to figure out. Like with aspirin, we knew for centuries that willow bark, from which acts, act, the, the active ingredient was, was extracted, was effective. But it took us, after we began to sell aspirin tablets in the late 1890s, about a century to figure out exactly how aspirin works. So there's a big lag yeah, between... That's amazing, yeah. Metatherapy works, how therapy works. Penicillin was about 35 years. So um, all of these things take a while. So now with these research tools like MRIs, EEGs, gene assays, the ability to look at microRNAs and very uh, drilled down to the very basic, most fundamental levels of our molecular biology, we're building up a really good profile, not just of that these energy techniques work, but how they work. And the comp... It's very, it's very broad field, but what it's showing generally is that it's producing large changes in brain states. So our neural signaling changes in several studies of people who, who are very experienced meditators, we're seeing things like big amounts of gamma in their brains. And gamma is the wave of integration. People who are confused, people who uh, don't feel well usually have very little gamma, often no gamma. And people who feel better, they have some gamma. What is gamma? Is that like an energy yeah, gamma is the highest brain wave. It's it's from it's from roughly 25 uh, cycles per second and up, and it's used by the brain to integrate information from many different distant brain regions. And so it's the the key signature wave of happiness, peace, and creativity. Highly creative people, composers, musicians, engineers, scientists, peak performers hmm. have lots of gamma. And so in some of the, the research, we're seeing. 800 times the amount of gamma in people's brains as in, in all brains. So, so first of all, our, our neural firing is very different. Then what starts to happen is our neural wiring becomes different. And in chapter one of my book, Mind to Matter, I have an amazing case history of an Australian man called Graham Phillips, hmm. who had a TV show called Catalyst. And because he was a TV journalist, when he began to learn meditation, he went into a lab and a TV crew followed him and they cataloged the scientists measuring every single part of the volume of his brain. He then began to do meditation and in a few weeks he felt better. Eight weeks later, we went back into the lab at Monash University and the same team of behavioral neuroscientists actually measured him again, measured all the different brain regions right. with a very, very high level, high powered MRI. And they found that many of his brain regions had changed in volume. So as neural firing 
is different, neural wiring starts to appear in the brain. And one part of his brain having to do with with emotional regulation. It coordinates emotional regulation across all different brain regions. It's called the dentate gyrus. It's right in the center of the brain. His dentate gyrus in eight weeks, lead, that part of his brain had grown by 22.8%. So physically grown. Physically. When you're talking about like you, you notice an expansion of volume, that's what you mean by... Yeah, so, so our, our, our brains start to fire differently, the volume of our brains changes, and then my field of study is epigenetics, what is happening with our genes. And so we're finding now as we do this work that gene, our genes are changing. Certain genes are being dialed up, others are being dialed down, and we can now map which genes are being affected. This then shows up in genetic byproducts like cortisol. In one study I did about 10 years ago, after just one hour of EFT tapping, one of these energy therapies, people's cortisol dropped by 24%. And a very recent study I did, we looked at people over the course of a week. And in, in one week, their their baseline cortisol levels in their body dropped by 37%. Now, this is a massive shift in biological resources. And so we're now mapping these changes in terms of brain function, in brain wiring, so physiology, brain physiology, then brain anatomy as our brains change, and then cellular anatomy as different genes are turned on and turned off. So that's kind of the, the new frontier of research into these therapies. We know that they work. We're now mapping how they work. How they work. Well, it's incredibly uh, exciting, but also very complex, I suppose. And looking at some of these energies, I know there's probably a lot of people, uh, similar to myself, I suppose, I'm, I'm less skeptical, but um, like the, the tapping and the Reiki and things like that, I guess it's just a lack of knowledge and information of how effective they are and with whether they work or not. But are they all related to the same thing about changing, um, you know, our, our mindfulness, our awareness, our consciousness? Yeah, and that's essentially the argument of my newest book, Mind to Matter, yeah. is that when you shift your consciousness, you are literally changing your body. And the book is based on over 400 research studies published in peer-reviewed professional journals, and they document in all kinds of ways, all kinds of dimensions, exactly how shifting your awareness, shifting your consciousness produces large-scale changes in your body. And Lee, I'll tell you the story of just one woman who did this and what happened to her. Mm. Her name's Beth, and she's coming out with a book soon on her story. And she was diagnosed in March of 2017 with stage four metastasized breast cancer. And the she was being treated at a very, very famous big uh, clinic in Houston, Texas. And they measured, the oncologist measured the lump in her breast at five centimeters across. So it was a big, solid tumor in her right breast. They then did thermography scans, and they found that all the lymph nodes under her right armpit were inflamed. And when, when the cancer gets into your lymph nodes, it very quickly can travel all over your body. Yeah. They began to look at other cancers. They found three spots of inflammation on Beth's right lung. So this is a this is a very, very serious diagnosis. And when she, she was given the diagnosis, the oncologist said to her that particular morning she got the diagnosis that this was so serious. The oncologist said, Beth, I want you to go straight from my office to the radiation department to get your first treatment right now. It's that urgent that you do this. And Beth said, I need time to think. And so she, she went away and she phoned me. She's, she's a very well-connected person. She has lots of, of, of high-level professional contacts. She emailed people. She had access to many pr prominent doctors and researchers. And she told us her story 
And like she had one gene test, and the gene test showed she had eight defective genes. And I said to her, Beth, you have 24,000 total genes in your body. That means you have 23,992 genes that are just fine. Let's work with those. Let's not obsess about the eight that are defective. So um, she began to do energy therapy. She began to do Reiki. She began to get energy healing treatments. She began to do Qigong intensively. We did EFT with her. We did tapping with her for releasing the traumas of her past. She quit all kinds of activities in her life that were stressing her out. She cleaned up her diet. She turned off all of her alerts. No more news, no more face, Facebook, no more being pinged by the bad news of the world. She she had a, a rigorous energy routine in her own mind. She mm. shifted her awareness. So again, she's not changing her body directly. She was only using consciousness. She, so in, in March, she got the diagnosis. In May, she went back to the cancer clinic, and they found that all of the lymph nodes in under her right armpit had, had which are not totally clear, totally free of cancer, uh, no sign of cancer in the lymph, lymph system, and that the tumor had shrunk from 5 centimeters to 1.4 centimeters. And of course, the doctors then said, well, let's cut it out now. And Beth said, you kidding? You know, I'm, doing, I'm doing much better. Uh, one of our other doctors said, I think the tumor is necrotic, it's just dying, no need to disturb it now. Um, and so eventually she got blood tests. They showed that she was totally cancer-free. And again, she just focused on changing her energy, changing her consciousness, changing her emotions. And that's the power of energy healing. We find people healing from all kinds of diseases when they just change their awareness, their consciousness, their energy. It's powerful and it's directly affecting the cells of their body. Right. Is it changing the energy that comes first or changing the, the state of our consciousness? Changing our consciousness changes the energy. For example, right. if you look at In Mind to Matter, I have quite a number of uh, images. There are over 150 pictures in the book, including ones of people hooked up to an EEG. So they're, they're doing an EEG, and then they go to meditative state. And you see all of their brain function comes into what we call coherence. And one of the big questions in the book is about manifestation. Some people are really good at manifestation. They can think things, they can visualize things, they can picture things, and then they manifest. Other people have all kinds of dreams and aspirations, and nothing happens. They, yeah. Those dreams manifest. Yeah. And so I'm prying into this interesting question for me, which is, why do the intentions of some people manifest and others not? And the, it, what, it, what at least is a partial contributor to this is as we hook them up to, to EEGs, we find that people who are good manifestors have highly coherent brain function and highly coherent heart function. So something called heart rate variability is highly coherent in these people, as is brain function. And I put... Uh, two EEGs side by side. So you can see the brain of somebody in coherence and somebody who's not in coherence. And they're totally different. Their brains are working completely differently. It's those those who are in high coherence who tend to be good manifestors. Okay. So you're saying the brain works completely differently. Does it work at the same capacity or the same level or just different parts of the brains are working differently? Different parts of the brain work differently. And there are several right. different, many different circuits. The brain works uh, not homogeneously, there are many different circuits in the brain. There's one called the default mode network. And this is the part of our brain that is responsible for keeping us alive. Yeah. And it has two complexes, one in the front of the brain, one near the back of the brain called the posterior cingulate cortex or PCC. And so what happens is when we are idle and inactive, when our brains aren't working on an actual problem, when we aren't focused on navigating a river in our kayak or composing a poem or, or mm -hmm. thinking about a work project, when our brains are just 
not having to do something active. State, right. Yeah, they just, they just revert back to this default mode network, and it, it has two types of content it processes. One is problems from the past, and the other is possible problems in the future. So it thinks back to the stuff that hurt you in the past, the stuff that might hurt you in the future. So when you're inactive, your brain is, is active in those regions, the default mode network. When you try and meditate, usually you close your eyes, you're, at, you're, you're not doing anything. Often people have a hard time meditating because the default mode network kicks yeah, in. Amen. So what we find in experienced meditators is they develop different parts of their brain, which I'm, I call the enlightenment circuit. And the enlightenment circuit is composed of four sub-circuits, but what they do is they suppress the activity of the default mode network. There's one called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. It's a line right into the emotional brain, the limbic system. And when you activate the, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, it calms your emotions. So now your eyes are closed, you're meditating, but you calm your emotions and you're able to develop intense focus in another part of your brain. So when you activate the enlightenment circuit, you then are shutting down default mode network, other sub-circuits, and you feel much more peaceful and more happier. Now, if you do this for a few days, that's good. If you do this for a few weeks, then a few months, then you start to have the kinds of, of neural tissue volume changes that Graham Phillips had in chapter one of the book. And that's what's powerful because you then have turned this brain state into a brain trait. It's actually who you are. It's the internal wiring of your brain. Hmm. So consciousness is becoming form. You know, energy consciousness is becoming physical matter. And that's, that's, that's the power. And we don't realize we have this power. You think, oh, I'll just, you know, have this negative emotion. I'll just get angry at this person. I'll just have this negative thought. It can't uh, hurt me. It can't do anything bad. And the answer from science is calm yourself, don't stay in those negative states. They are rewiring those parts of your brain in a negative way. There's something called negative neuroplasticity, which is like patients with PTSD. What we see after a while is that the amygdala, the brain's fire alarm, the, the di different parts of the stress circuitry of the brain get bigger. So they have more and more flashbacks, more and more nightmares. Uh, those The learning and memory centers of the brain mm. actually begin atrophy and shrivel. I've done a lot of research with PTSD patients, and that's a common change that happens. So PTSD happens over time. People's brain function starts to shift over time. Meditators, they're building up all of these wonderful parts of the brain that make you happy. People who are stressed or traumatized or are negative thinkers are also building up their brains. It's just they're building up the wrong circuits. Yeah, right. Okay. So is there a case that, you know, folks just you know, trying to be more positive all the time is, is better for us because there's, there's also the case that, you know, understanding the negative futures or potential futures uh, might be a good thing as well um, to, uh, you know, risk aversion, et cetera. Yes. Uh, well, if you are already faced with a life-threatening situation or a big threat to your survival, your, your stress machinery will kick in. But how often are you faced with a life-threatening emergency? I mean, it may happen occasionally or there might be some big bad problem you have to figure out occasionally. The problem is that we have all the circuitry devoted to that in our brains because it's part of our evolutionary history. We've just evolved over the course of millions of years to have that default mode network, and it actually takes up a lot of our brain tissue hmm. to focus on the past. So in psychology, before we knew about all about the neurobiology of this, psychology 70 years ago identified what it called the brain's negativity bias, that in the absence of any stimulation, the brain will revert to negative thinking. And again, that was totally adaptive for a paleolithic human being 
25,000 years ago, right. 50,000 years ago, 500,000 years ago, you wanted to be thinking about the snake that bit you two years ago and the snake that might bite you tomorrow. I mean, it was really useful for your ancestors to have this obsession with the negative things of the past hmm. and negative possible futures. But for, for you know, for you and me, Lee, I mean, what, how often do I really have a life-threatening These situation? Days, yeah, not too often. Yeah. And, and so uh, here I have all this neural equipment to do this. And I do do it. So we, we worry about emotional problems, about imaginary threats, about scenarios that are never going to happen, highly yeah. unlikely to happen. And yeah. we make ourselves stressed, depressed, angry, anxious. The rates of depression are enormous. The World Health Organization says depression is now overtaking pain next year as the main cause, cause of disability worldwide. You know, why, why, is it, why are people so depressed? If you look at the actual objective facts, World wealth has tripled in the past 33 years. World wealth, the average person in the average part of the world, uh, is has gone up a hundredfold since 1800. Uh, in er- every single metric of human flourishing, there are fewer wars than there used to be, uh, infant mortality, health, longevity. I mean, everything is getting better, objectively. Mm. But people still then have these symptoms of depression, anxiety, and so on. So these are these are just a relic of our evolution, and it's well worth shifting. I mean, now that we know we can actually literally change our brains with these consciousness practices, it's well worth engaging all of this, what I call, in the book I call it, your everyday superpower. It's something that you can do, anyone can do. You just have to uh, decide to make that conscious choice to do it. And then like Beth, you have to really follow through and apply yourself. You can't mm. just say, well, I'll do it you know, a little bit. Uh, just what I recommend in the book, I give people 30 practices like yeah. yoga, time in nature and grounding and EFT tapping and meditation. And I, I say, you don't have to do all 30, but just do the ones that work for your lifestyle. Like for, you know, for a woman who, one woman wrote in and said, for example, she said, I'm, I'm an overwhelmed single mother. I'm in negativity most of the time. I've been trying to meditate for years. I'm always unsuccessful. I'm so stressed out. She then tried this simple seven-step meditation we have in the book. And she emailed us and she said, when I sat out to do it, my self-talk cranked up and and was saying, Tony, this is never going to work for you. You've never been able to meditate. You've never been successful. You're wasting your time now. And she said, what I did those seven simple steps you have in the book. I hit step three, which has to do with sending love through your heart to another human being. And she said, suddenly I was in bliss. Tears of joy began to roll down my cheeks. I was in that state that I've always wanted to be in. And then she said that the really important thing, Lee, she said, I am now making the commitment to meditate every single day. And we don't advocate that to people in the book, but we've now had scores of emails and feedback from people who read Mind to Matter who were saying, I, this book was what tipped the balance for me. Now I am making that commitment to meditate every day for, one woman told me this last week, 30 days. Another woman said 90 days. So people are, are doing this, and it's literally changing their brain to where they feel much, much happier. Mm. Amazing stuff. And uh, there's a lot of science around there. I mean, I'm, I listen to a lot of this, um, the science around meditation and consciousness and how awareness really does transform, transform our overall well-being and health and um, our life as well. What is it about something like tapping or Reiki? Can we just sort of go through how something like that works to change um, our energy levels or our consciousness? Yeah, and the way tapping works, tapping works on the acupuncture meridians of the body. 
And so nowadays we can measure these meridians, we can measure these energy flows using instruments like a galvanometer because they have very different electrical charge at the center of an acupuncture point. So uh, we now can measure these flows. And we find with tapping, with acupressure... So we're just tapping on certain points of the body? Yeah, you're tapping essentially with EFT, you're tapping on 13 acupressure meridian points on mm-hmm. the, these meridian flows. And, th- and this regulates them. So if there was a blockage there, it tends to get you unblocked. And so um, we found that in MRI studies, when people are worried, when they're stressed, when they're upset, the emotional brain is highly active. Mm-hmm. And this shows up in the limbic system, the midbrain, yeah. as a high-level activity. If you look at an MRI, uh, basically uh, there are five gradations usually in EEGs and MRIs of brain activity. And so an upset, stressed person, their emotional brain, the part of the brain that processes fear and resentment and anger and upset, that part of the brain is, is really highly active. It's all red. And it's amazing to watch what happens when they start to tap. They tap these these points, often just seven, eight, nine, ten of them, and you just see that temperature drop and drop into the uh, the blue and the green zone. So now suddenly they're still remembering the bad thing. And with veterans, this is especially interesting because I've done a lot of research with war veterans, Vietnam mm. war, war veterans, Iraq war veterans, and we find that, again, their, their whole brains are highly lit up. But when they tap, they just calm down. So they still remember the bad things that happened to them. They, they don't lose those memories. They lose all of the emotional charge around those memories. And this shows up in the MRI or the EEG scan. Yeah, well, what are some of these points on the body that we can tap? Well, if you take a look at the, the book, there's, there, there are diagrams I'll yeah. give you. I, I said you to, to the book, but um, essentially that they are the end points of acupuncture meridians. There are 14 meridians. Each one has an end point. And so you tap on those end points and um, just, just, just download. We have a free mini manual with a diagram in, in the back. Just tap on this one page uh, of the tapping points, tap on those points. You also monitor your emotions before and after. So you think about the bad thing that happened the traumatic memory, you then give it a score from 0 to 10, with 10 being the highest possible level of emotion and 0 being no emotion, and then you score yourself before and after tapping. And typically, people will go way down. Like one one Vietnam veteran that I have in my book, um, he, he was a 10 out of 10 for the memory of when his, his best friend was, was killed by a sniper. In, in Vietnam one day. It was a terrible situation, and they were on patrol, and his friend was shot in the head. And um, he still remembered his friend's head and just the, the horrible memories. And uh, after tapping, he went down to, to a zero around that. So he remembered his yeah. friend. And he still had all the, 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 the affection Emotional for his friend. Yeah. He no longer had the, the PTSD symptoms around the memory. So with this sort of activity, like tapping, it's again, it feels to me like it's really just centering our our focus and awareness and and taking it away from the, I guess, influence of, you know, emotion centers um, that may be affecting us in adverse ways. Yeah. And, you know, emotions really handy. I mean, emotional, we developed emotions uh, around 400 million years ago with the rise of mammals. So reptiles don't have all that brain tissue. Reptiles don't feel the way mammals do. So if you look into the eye of a lizard or a snake, that's just a, the eye is a sense organ. Look into the eye of a dolphin or a dog or a mouse and you see sentience there because there's an emotional connection there because they have, they have that ability to feel. So we have these, these wonderful things called emotions, but um, if they are 
active much of the time. If, if, we're, if, we're, if we're spending a lot of our days in, in, in anxiety and stress, depressed, uh, worried about the future, fearful, those are having these huge epigenetic effects on our body and is also causing non-coherence in our brain waves. So when we tap, when we use energy therapies, we find all of this stuff just smooths out and we feel better. Hmm. So we, we recommend people tap for stresses from today, from the past, but also then use EFT on all of the traumatic memories of their distant past. So not just what's happening with me today, but tapping on, going back to my childhood, about half of the veterans in our studies were working on combat memories. But for many of them, they were abused as children. They have traumatic memories of being either physically or sexually or emotionally abused. Uh, they may have been bullied, all kinds of things that are left over from the past. And what we find in PTSD research is that the people who get PTSD, so one of the big mysteries is that why with two and a half million Americans going through Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 15 years, why do a third come back with PTSD and two thirds who've had exactly the same experiences hmm. of civilian deaths and roadside explosions and the deaths of their friends? Why do they not get PTSD? Why are they resilient? And the, one of the crucial differences is that the ones who get PTSD are predisposed to it by having a history of family violence as children. If they witnessed or experienced family violence when they were young, their chances of getting PTSD as adults are much higher. So we want to go in proactively using EFT. And with these veterans, often we're not tapping on the combat memories. We're tapping on dad punching me when I was five years old, or my uncle uh, sexually molesting me when I was eight years old, or things like that. So we work on on those kinds of memories. Now, they're very painful. It's not, not like this, this stuff is, 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 is a lot of fun to dredge up and, and tap on, but people's level of emotional reactivity to the memories drops really rapidly. Mm. And it's just amazingly, if you're if you're treating people, like I, I work with a lot of people in, in live workshops. And in the live workshops, you like one, one woman, for example, at a live workshop, she was a therapist and she was in her mid-40s and she'd been sexually abused from the ages of 2 to 17. Mm. And uh, she was a very strong person and wanted to work with me on stage on, on that 15 years of sexual abuse. And we did a long session, a very, a very difficult session, lost about, about an hour doing EFT. And after that, she said, you know, I realize now I was happy at two, but even underneath the abuse, I was happy at three, four, five, nine, and 15. I was happy throughout it all at this very deep level. Um, and I'm happy today. And she stood up to the whole group and she said, nothing that man could do to me, nothing that life could throw at me could take away my joy. And I'm almost in tears saying this to you. I mean, it was just so, so moving. The whole audience was like, they were in tears. Because here you have this woman who had horrendous abuse. Yeah. It's called developmental trauma in some uh, parts of psychiatry because it's it's not an abuse that happened when you were older and had the resources to handle it. It was happening to a young person. And yet her whole story around it changed that nothing, even that, could not, my joy was so strong that nothing could take it away. Now, that's a much better and more empowered life story and, and framing to have around your trauma than I was abused from the age of two to the age of 17. So that's the kind of shift you see with EFT. It's incredible, huh? Yeah, and then that person has a very different health future because they're no longer carrying that burden of stress the rest of their lives. So how does, yeah, so once we start to work on, on our state of consciousness, and 
Actually, quick question, subconscious and consciousness, um, is there a difference there from what you see in these studies? Because from what I understand is that a big part of our lives is controlled by the subconscious nature, not the conscious nature. Are we seeing more awareness leading to you know more higher consciously involved individuals and therefore more, um, I guess, more controlled lives? It's true that much of that is is subconscious and unconscious, and in in, in EEG studies, that those two waves are delta and theta. Okay. You can see where people are in those states by tracking those two brain waves, and uh, that's very difficult to handle. So, what do you do, for example? There's something called in in uh, in, in our training school the trauma capsule, and that is when an event is so traumatic that the child literally wraps it in an amnesia bundle and buries it in their muscles, buries it in their body. They don't want to have to, have to deal with it, so they bury it in their subconscious or unconscious. And so uh, with, with EFT, we have techniques we use to work on those memories that have been buried. So many people have a lot of these trauma capsules there, and they, they're driving their lives now. One man, for example, um, had a problem in applying for jobs. And when he'd apply for jobs, he was often very qualified for the jobs. He'd get turned down because he'd give a terrible interview to the interviewer. Hmm. And so we delved into why. why. Why was he doing this? We looked deep below the surface. And the answer was almost always found in childhood. And as he talked about his childhood, it turned out he'd gone to Catholic school and he'd been in, in boarding school, and he'd been pretty miserably treated by the nuns in, in boarding school. So we, we, we worked on these childhood traumas around the nuns, because what was happening is that subconsciously, now he's 45 years old, he's sitting in a job interview, and there's a woman behind the desk interviewing him, and she's a woman of power, like the nuns were. She's often wearing black and white, like the nuns were. And here, he has no idea why he suddenly gets tongue-tied and begins stammering and can't represent himself well because of this very subconscious trauma. And so you you have to get to that level and work with those things, and then your current life issues start to change. You change your whole story about your current life. We tapped with him on this, and after that, he had no no difficulty with those job interviews. So you have to work with those subconscious things. It's unpleasant. No one likes to do it. But research shows that you have to do that to break through to, to reclaim your full potential. So with the unconscious or subconscious directed behaviors and thoughts in our lives, are we seeing a difference in people that are, you know, have a, have a solid practice of meditation or something like that, um, being more consciously involved in those behaviors, thoughts, etc.? Yes and no. Um, I was talking to a couple of meditation teachers recently and um, the the answer, the, the, quest, the big question is that many people can meditate, many people can't. And um, if you're trying to think positive, if you're trying to meditate, if you're trying to change your life with maybe visualization or affirmation or other stress reduction tools, self-help tools, and Lee, if you have a substrate in your subconscious and unconscious levels, also in your cells, in your body, of trauma. If you haven't healed that, it's very, very difficult to make progress in your personal growth right. journey. And so it's the trauma healing that comes first. It's, you know, the meditation is great, but the trauma healing is a cornerstone. Until you've done the trauma healing, you're trying to, um, in the phrase of 
people in Texas where I went, went to university trying to put lipstick on a pig. You know, you're trying to think positively, but you have these these events, these subconscious sabotaging beliefs, these subconscious patterns, and they're pulling you down. So people try and meditate. They try and give themselves a positive life. They try and ascend these elevated emotional states, mm. and they get sucked down time and time and time again. They're not successful. But if you go and heal that trauma, if you go and tap on those early life events, and there are also ways of, of working with practitioners, and those practitioners will then help you find really deeply hidden events or even work with you on events on which you have no memory. So there, there's some very, very advanced practices like that. Once you've healed all that trauma, then you use affirmations and visualizations, you meditate, then those those changes stick. But you have to go in there and heal the trauma first. Yeah, I started to hear recently that perhaps we, you know, that that need to go back to childhood memories, past traumas and, and try and heal that maybe is is less necessary than we once thought. Have you seen studies around that? There are very advanced energy healing tools, which we teach in our certification program, called advanced energy therapies. And it is possible sometimes with, with, with the right people to, to heal without them having to go and face the full horror of the stuff that happened in their, their past. So, yeah, there, is, there are some uh, techniques like that. But there's an important new field of psychology called memory reconsolidation and extinction. And it's really at the leading edge of where psychology is is evolving today. And it does show that you need to actually go back and deal with those things. If uh, you you have dissociation, if you have repression, Mm. if you're unable to face those things, if you're too afraid to face them, it's, it's, it's very rare that you'll be successful in releasing them. But if you are willing to face them and you have the right tools like EMDR, like EFT, there are a whole bunch of great somatic therapies that use your, your body sensations, then like we often our therapists will work with a veteran and they'll be working on 10 memories in an hour, maybe 15 or 20 memories in a single hour. So, so they're bringing the, their, their 15 worst memories into therapy session and they're working on an hour later and all the emotional impact of this is just gone. So... It, it, it definitely sucks to have to go back and remember your, your bad childhood, mm. but uh, research shows that it usually is necessary. Beneficial. Okay. Yeah. Now, talk to me about um, you know creating our material reality from um, high levels of consciousness. Yeah. So you want to create your material reality not from the level of local mind. And in the very introduction of the book, I introduced the idea of local mind. At the what end is of the local book, mind? Local mind. So local mind is your local consciousness. Okay. And we're beginning to work on how consciousness works, and our brains are like a transducer. They are, they are translating consciousness into a local reality. It's really interesting how they do this. So there is an information field, and our brains are translating that into a local reality. And that's our local mind and our local reality. And the mistake we made in thinking about the brain for many, many years is thinking that consciousness arises 
from the brain. That was the old model, like in the 60s, 50s. Yeah. We thought that we had these really complicated brains and they're throwing up this phenomenon called consciousness. But there's, there's absolutely zero scientific proof for that, that hypothesis. And there's a lot more evidence that our brains are downloading it. So the old view was that, you know, we look at like people are listening to this podcast now, maybe they're using an iPad, okay, to listen to it. So we used to think that, wow, we've got this really complicated thing called an iPad over here. And, and Lee and Dawson must be inside the iPad. I mean, the iPad must be creating Lee and Dawson because here I am. I mean, there's nothing visible. I know wires leading to the iPad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the iPad. So, so clearly, uh, this this podcast originates in the iPad. So we made that mistake with bra the brain for decades now, thinking that we have this complicated neurological thing. It must be giving rise to consciousness. But consciousness is much more something that our brains are acting as a receiver for, just the way the iPad is acting as a receiver for the podcast. So. Um, what much more modern research is showing is that we have this local device on which we're downloading this information field, but there is non-local information. And when you meditate, often if you make, I don't, I don't want to get too complicated here, um, there is a, a phase of meditation. And again, we're mapping out when in meditation this happens and what the brain waves look like. But there's a time in meditation when you shift your the location of the central of your center of your awareness from your local mind to non-local mind. And so meditators describe things like suddenly I'm out of my body. I'm having an out-of-body experience. I'm hovering over my body. I'm looking down on my body from a great height. I'm, I'm not in my body. and I'm where I'm not in my body. I'm somewhere else in consciousness. And that's non-local mind. Right. And so we recommend with, with all of these practices like visualization and, and affirmation that you don't set your goals when you're limited by and focused in local mind, because all you're doing then is you're reenacting your conditioning, you're reenacting your past. If, on the other hand, you've healed your past and you're able to meditate, reach these ascended states, and there's a circuit in the brain that, that I call the enlightenment circuit. So you, you, you light up the enlightenment circuit. Now you're in these elevated states. You're, in, you're one with non-local mind. Now you start to download visualizations and affirmations and views of the world, views of yourself, views of the nature of the universe. You're, you're one with the universe. That's the, what these, uh, these meditators and people with high spiritual states tell us. They literally lose their sense of self and they feel one with everything. And that's being in non-local mind. Now oh, you have okay. this hugely elevated perspective. You feel wonderful. Not only that, absolutely massive physiological changes start happening in your body. You have surges of oxytocin, which is the main bonding hormone. Uh, your whole parietal lobe of the brain reduces its activity. And that's the part of the brain that orients you in, in, in space. So you lose all sense of space. Uh, you have this huge rush of the bonding hormone. There's another neurotransmitter called anandamide, also called the bliss molecule. You have an explosion of anandamide in your synapses, in your brain. So you feel blissful, you feel bonded, and you don't feel bonded to, to, your, to a local self because of the parietal lobe shutting down. You feel bonded to the universe. You have this, 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 this bliss experience, and that's the stage you want to get to. That's where you create from. And then the other encouraging research is that it shows that when you then end the meditation and open your eyes, your brain 
doesn't revert to the state it was, state it was before meditation. You, you carry that forward into your daily life. Hmm. So in a set of studies I quote in my book, Mind to Matter, there, are, there was a long-term study by a consultancy called McKinsey Corporation, and they showed that people in these flow states you attain when you're in touch with non-local mind, people in those flow states, high achievers, executives in those flow states, their productivity at work increases fivefold. And their creativity more than doubles. Their problem-solving ability goes up by more than 400%. So now, in your daily life, not in meditation, you are in a very different kind of mental state. Yeah. And you're bringing this creativity and problem-solving ability to the difficult problems of your life and your, your work and your world. And so this non-local mind connection is now producing changes in your local brain and your local mind. You're enormously happier and more fulfilled and productive and creative. So you have a much better life for yourself in these states. That's incredible. It sounds like a, like a powerful drug or something like that. <laughs> yeah, there are actually seven of these drugs you, you get. Uh, serotonin is one of them. You get, you get floods of serotonin. And the active ingredient in, 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 in psilocybin, magic mushrooms, is serotonin. And psilocybin docks to the same receptor sites as serotonin in your brain. So when you have lots of serotonin flooding your brain, that docks to that, that same receptor site as yeah. psilocybin, magic mushrooms. And actually, anandamide, the active molecule in in marijuana is THC, and THC docks to the same receptors in your synapses as anandamide docks to. So now you're getting these, these floods of anandamide, floods of serotonin, increased dopamine, oxytocin, nitric oxide, all, there's actually seven of these chemicals, and they happen in meditation, and you feel just blissful when you return from being non-local mind back into local mind. So it's a powerful state, and then be able to replicate that during the day, bring yourself mm. back quickly, also cements those changes in your neural network and your biology. Yeah, wow. <laughs> this, is, this is amazing stuff. I just, you know, as, as I just think about this, this Lee, I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's incredible. And, and again, you know, that's why I appreciate your work and, and the research that goes into it and the, the numerous other studies out there that are showing how powerful, you know, meditational practice is um, in regards to our state of consciousness. And you've just sort of explained it on a different level again, which is great uh, for myself and the audience listening too. Um, yeah, you want science to, to, be, to be, you know, uh, you want a scientific explanation because like, for years we've we, we relied on like mysticism. Like, what is mysticism? What are, what are these mystical states? They seem very mysterious. Now I can literally look, look at someone's EEG and I can tell you exactly what state they're in. If there's somebody who's upset, I, I actually, in, in Mind to Matter, I have, I think, five EEGs side by side. And um, without knowing the, the age of the person, the gender of the person, the emotional state of the person, you know, nothing about them. And I can, I can literally glance at an EG like that. And I will tell you how upset they are, how stressed they are. The meditative pattern is so different. We call it the awakened mind. That pattern is so different from the stressed out pattern that literally a trained uh, neurofeedback expert takes one glance at those EEGs and we can tell you exactly where that person is emotionally. So we, these used to be very mysterious, mystical states. Now we found the formula. We just we discovered exactly how those brains work, and we now are focusing on training people to acquire those brain states themselves. It's fantastic. So let's just wrap this up with maybe some practical takeouts, people listening out there, because some of what you've just explained sounds like it, you know, must just be for experts in in the game that have been doing it for centuries. You know, um, how do we begin and start to build up 
that level where we can go into this non-local mind state and and really start to you know improve our lives through meditation and mindfulness and you know adapting consciousness Lee, that's a very practical question, and that's where the rubber meets the road, because if we hear about this, read about it, and are inspired, that's great. But then what do you do? How do you actually make it practical in your life? And so in Mind to Matter, I give about 30 evidence-based practices that, again, there's the solid science behind everyone that will really potentially shift your life. And so I recommend that people play around with the ones that work for them. Just for example, my wife loves yoga. Uh, I personally get much more of qigong. And so for some people, qigong will move the needle. Other people, it's yoga. But try those kinds of moving meditations and see which one works for you. Another one is, of course, we mentioned EFT, acupressure. That's easy to learn. But you you want to just experiment with each of these 30 things, see what fits for your lifestyle. Maybe uh, a short meditation is all you can do. On the world's biggest meditation app, it's called Insight Timer. I have seven meditations that, again, are all evidence-based and walk you through this, and they're all under 15 minutes long. So it doesn't take a long time to to do this. So you you just you just do something like a guided meditation that puts you in these in these elevated states of non-local awareness. So um, the practical things are looking at which of these 30 practices that I show in Mind Matter shift you into that relaxed state. Which of them works for your lifestyle? And it may be a brief meditation. It certainly should be some meditation. You don't need to do two hours of meditation, but you do need 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes. You, usually starting is that small. daily or, I mean, is there, is there a period of time that we should be doing, you know, these practices, yoga, meditation, whatever it might be? Yeah, d- daily and first thing in the morning is ideal. Whatever you do, do not turn on your cell phone. Do not look at Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Turn off your earth like, like Beth did. Uh, do not look outside of yourself for elevated consciousness because you will find very little in the mass media. And uh, so I, I mentioned how every, by every metric of human thriving, things have been improving in, in the last century. But uh, a, a huge study of, uh, of news reports in 140 different countries showed that over the same time period, the news has been getting worse and worse and worse. There are more and more occurrences of words like crisis and disaster and tragedy. All of these words are increasing in the news, even as they're all objectively decreasing in reality. So you don't want to be turning on your alerts early in the morning or, or in any way trying to relate to the <laughs> yeah. outside world. Relate to the inner world, get into a non-local mind. Do it first thing in the morning because then it's the stre- it's the, it's the actually the, the bedrock of your whole reality. You put yourself in this elevated emotional and mental space first. And that, that is a profound act of self-care. It's an act of self-love. It's an act of self-affirmation to say, nothing is more important to me than feeling good. And I'm going to make myself feel good when I wake up first thing in the morning. So that, that's why I recommend that early morning meditation as your first act of the day. Then you go about your day. And then as you go about your day, bad stuff happens. And you may get an email from somebody who tells you something yep. negative. You might get a phone call that's upsetting. You might be disturbed by something on the news or something so it says to you on your work team. That's what you tap. So you need a really quick two-minute stress reduction routine, and that's where EFT comes in handy. So those two fundamental practices, I think, do more to shift you into these elevated states than anything else. Meditation first thing during the morning, and then tapping whenever you're stressed during the day. Now, there's lots else you can do. I I love time in nature. So I take a retreat, usually once every few 
few weeks, uh, once a quarter. Uh, every year, I lead about 50 people on a seven-day life vision retreat at the end of the year as they download their highest good for the next year into their local mind. Powerful, powerful, powerful practice to do retreats in nature. Mm. Uh, there are many other things. Grounding yourself is powerful. Again, these moving techniques like qigong, tai chi, yoga, flow movement, all of those things are already valuable. And so what you want to do is craft a suite of techniques that fits your lifestyle. Maybe you can't go away for a month-long retreat. No problem. Go away for a weekend. Go Just go, to the, go, go get a massage and get an acupuncture treatment and then go for a walk in nature on a Saturday. Do, do things that really nourish you that way and then start to see your life improve. But do those daily practices because those daily ones are the ones that start to shift your, your brain function. Also, once you feel that anandamide and that nitric oxide and that oxytocin and that serotonin and dopamine and these seven neurochemicals of bliss, you get addicted to them. You get addicted to feeling good. And anything that happens that makes you feel bad motivates you to quickly return to your positive feeling baseline. So it's like a, a cocktail. It's like a, a tea. If you're used to two scoops of sugar and milk in your tea, that's the formula that works for you. When, when you're used to this, this bliss brain formula in your brain every day, then that becomes your new normal. You get used to that mixture of neurochemicals in your brain, and then that becomes the new you. It triggers positive neural plasticity. Your brain starts to grow along those positive lines. Then you become a resilient person. So uh, the dating practices then transfer themselves into resilience and long-term brain change. Then you're resilient. So when you lose your job, when the next economic downturn strikes, when you get divorced, when uh, there, there are global tragedies that are genuine, you are resilient because it isn't just a state. It's now a neurological trait. You remodeled your brain to be that person mm. who's patient, who's kind, who's compassionate, who's loving. That's now you, and that is the new normal into which you brought yourself. So that, that's what I recommend people do practically is practice just a couple of these simple techniques, find the ones that work for you, but make them part of your, of your everyday life. Yeah, love it. I um, and I couldn't agree more with a lot of those practices. They certainly benefit me. Although guilty, I'm not not that consistent um, with many of them as well. With the meditation one, and that's something that I certainly try to do every day, every morning as well. Um, and I still find it quite difficult. And I know you you give a guide in your book about um, you know a simple seven step. I think you said um, to practice meditation in your own life, but. I get to a point where I'm in meditation and yeah, my thoughts keep coming in and that's fine. Um, and sometimes it's really hard to, to go to that next level. What are your thoughts around that? Because I think that's when people go, this isn't working. I'm just sitting here and I'm just thinking, um, I might as well be busy doing something, you know, I've got other things to do. Well, several different strategies there. One is guided meditation, because if you're listening to something yeah. that that is a focus that you follow along with. And, and with, with eco-meditation, my seven-step program of meditation, it's based on seven physiological things you do with your breath, with your tongue, with muscles in your body. So you're having to focus as you're meditating on executing these commands. That keeps your, your mind can't really wander too much because you're having to do these seven things over and over and over again. So that, that is one way of overcoming that is using a guided meditation. Yeah. Another is to meditate for long enough to drop into a deep state. And uh, the MRI research shows that that takes experienced meditators about 20 minutes. Okay. Now, I'm working now on, on a new book and, and some new strategies to help people do it in under five minutes. 
But again, that takes a lot of practice. So initially, it's going to take you, uh, it'll take experienced people 20 minutes, and then they'll they'll flip that switch into non-local mind, and they'll be there. Uh, so as you practice these techniques, it'll take you a while at first. But then with practice, like whether you're practicing your tennis swing or swimming or rowing, after a while, you just get build up more neural tissue, and it becomes easier and easier. Mm. So in treats, for example, the first day, day one, we induce these coherent states in people with uh, guided meditation. And it takes us four minutes to get them there. But by the third day, and again, we have them hooked up to EEG, so we're not guessing about whether they're in the awakened mind state. We know, because we're staring at their, their brain activity. So the first day, it's taking them four, four minutes to get there. By the third day, it's taking them about 90 seconds, minute and a half. And again, we see that happening on the EEG. And then they're also, by that time, by the third day, they're able to maintain that state, um, eyes open. So they open the eyes, they're still there. I was just reading a, a, a study by, by a, a neuroscientist friend of mine who's actually writing up the, this research for a peer-reviewed journal. And um, she's saying that when people do the simple seven-step meditation, that they're seeing what's called gamma synchrony in the brain to a degree they've never seen it before. Like, yeah. you know, just 16 times the amount of gamma synchrony yeah. they would before. And that's when the brain is dropping into non-local mind and into this highly creative state of flow. So it's not that hard. And then if you practice it, it gets easier. Yeah, I think that's that's the key. And uh, I like that 20 minutes. So perhaps I'm probably reduced my time uh, in the recent uh, year. Uh, as as the amount of time I give to meditate. So, um, yeah, maybe a little bit more time might help with that as well. Um, look, some great advice today and, and lots of awesome thoughts shared. So I hope that's inspired everyone listening out there. I want to encourage uh, everyone to get a copy of the book. Um, so it's Mind to Matter. Is that correct? Mind to Matter, yes. Mind to Matter, yeah. So pick up. I'll stick the link in the show notes for that as well, guys. And you've also got a website there, Dawson, called mindtomatter.com. So everyone can go up there and check it out. Um, how else can people sort of reach out to you and where do you want to sort of direct them? MindMeta.com is a good one because through there you can you can click on the tab saying live events. We have about 50 workshops a year with, with certified trainers. I'm teaching all over the world. Uh, so there are that one portal will put you in touch with everything else. Yeah, I love it. Mate, thanks for coming on and sharing. It's um, been an awesome interview. It's been a real joy, and thanks for your focus on practical tools because that's where the rubber meets the road. I think that's it. Yeah, you got to you got to put it into practice. But uh, lovely chat, and guys out listening, thanks for listening. And uh, until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. 
You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Manutzi. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.